the idea that we would have had a regular episode of Veep airing while I'm just making this up, like the insurrection was going on, our show would have seemed like, well, why don't we just take these episodes and throw them in the garbage? Like, there's no point in airing them. That's David Mandel, head writer and showrunner of the iconic HBO satire Veep, starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus as the uber-egotistical vice president, then president, then former president campaigning for the presidency, Selena Meyer. So on the one hand, you can't compete. Like, your show just seems awful. That being said, in the wake of all of it, I wish I were doing the show right now and could be doing our own versions now, a little bit after the fact, of all of that stuff. To the many criticisms of the Trump administration, let's add the premature demise of Veep. I'm Robert Pease, and this is The Purple Principle, a podcast about the perils of political and cultural polarization. And I'm co-host Jillian Youngblood. Rob, I can't believe how lucky we are to be discussing perhaps my favorite show of all time, Veep, with a comedy all-star like David Mandel. He has written for literally a pantheon of television comedies over the past three decades. I hate to say this to a Jets fan, Jillian, but... Isn't he kind of like the Tom Brady of TV comedy? Or some might say the LeBron James of TV comedy. But whatever team Mandel is on, he racks up the big laugh points. And David's no stranger to politics either, having studied government at some school called Harvard and worked at Saturday Night Live under Al Franken many years before landing the Veep showrunner role. David Mandel has written for not only SNL and Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm and of course Veep, but also the occasional Simpsons episode. An impressive list, so we're dying to know more about David's formative years and influences. Not surprisingly, he mentions some great comedians. But also a great love of comic books and tremendous respect for the prize-winning Lyndon Johnson biographer, Robert Caro. I actually grew up in New York City on 70th and West End, right in Manhattan. So I was uh, an Upper West Side kid for my, I like to still think I am, but I guess I'm not. But yeah, New York. What are some of your biggest influences in terms of what are your favorite shows, movies, books? Sure. You know, it's funny. When I was growing up actually in New York City, the independent station, Channel 11, WPIX, they used to, at 11 p.m., I was always a late night kid, 11 o'clock p.m., they had The Odd Couple, and at 11.30, they had The Honeymooners. Those were huge defining sort of comedy influences for me. I watched everything, but the ones that jumped out at me were the ones that were different. St. Elsewhere and Moonlighting. I learned so much from those, you know, especially those first three seasons of Moonlighting. Movies, it wasn't always comedy. I mean, I just loved movies. My mom was a big moviegoer. I can remember her on the Upper West Side taking me to revival theaters and seeing like Hitchcock and stuff. I'm a big comic book reader, so that's in there somewhere as well. My mom also had a big comedy album collection. So, I mean, I can even remember, I still have her like Mort Saul albums. And I know I'm not, and I know I'm not supposed to say it, but uh, the Woody Allen stand-up comic album is still great regardless, I guess. So wherever that fits in, yeah. But, uh, um, you know, the stand-up stuff, Steve Martin, Wild and Crazy Guy, the early Saturday Night Live stuff, Letterman was a huge influence. Yeah. So 
The Upper West Side, pro- yep. I don't know, probably has some of the highest voter turnout, I would guess, in the country. Really politically <laughs> engaged place to grow up. Very, very politically always- engaged, very annoying, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps annoying in the best way. Yeah. Um, were you always interested in politics? I definitely was interested in politics. I was always very interested in history. I had a little mini collection of like political buttons and stuff. I've always been a reader of biographies, basically like presidential biographies, presidential autobiographies, those kinds of things. You know, I live and die at the feet of Robert Caro. He actually went to my high school. Uh, we were in different classes, obviously. So I got introduced to the power broker senior year of high school. And so, you know, all of those things were definitely a part of me. I was a government major in college. So definitely politics was always very important. I will say getting the Veep job took me to another level. And then I will say this in the most nonpartisan way I humanly can. As the world seemed to turn to shit about 15, 16 years ago, I definitely engaged more. And obviously that's an opinion of the shit, but it definitely caused an engagement that somewhat maxed out and coincided with the Veep job. Those things sort of kind of came together in a way for me that got me extra engaged, I guess, or on a different level than I feel like I am now as opposed to where I was. Now I'm one of the annoying people. So yeah. So knowing what you know now from that and from your Veep experience, have you ever considered running for office yourself? I probably think there are at least 500 tweets of mine that would prevent that from happening. So uh, Al Franken, former senator, and obviously people have their opinions of that as well, was my mentor. He hired me at Saturday Night Live. And I remember in the early days of his campaigning, watching dummies take comedy out of context and read it back as part of the record. And it's a very hard thing to do, sort of to let like a dumb person basically repeat comedy without irony and all of those things. So I do believe humor for the masses is a problem. Um, You know, one of the beautiful things about Veep was it was on HBO where you had to sort of want to watch it perhaps more so than had it been, not that it could have been on NBC at 9 p.m., but I think NBC at 9 p.m., besides the language, the opinions and sort of a lot of the viewpoint probably would have been a lot more problematic because Selena was a horrible person and she was offensive and yet she was also a politician. And you had to let her be offensive to show how horrible she was, which didn't necessarily mean I, as the writer or one of the writers, was endorsing the offensive things she was saying. But some people, I guess, feel in terms of comedy that you can't say anything that's offensive, even in jest. So So you're not running for city council. No, not not running for city council, not running for city council. (laughs) Although it'd be a heck of a job. The L.A. City Council has a lot of power. That's David Mandel, comedy writer extraordinaire. And you heard it here first on The Purple Principle. He's officially not a candidate for the L.A. City Council. Or any political office, so long as his tweets stay on the record. But he is one of the great satirists of our time, social and political. 
and was the guiding force of Veep in its final three seasons. You know, there are so many great elements to Veep. It's got these fast-paced plots, topical writing, obviously superb acting, not only by Julia Louis-Dreyfus, but by the whole cast. Veep adapted a norm-busting original concept from the British show The Thick of It. Without mentioning political parties, the show skewered lower-level British cabinet ministers, their obsessions with media coverage, and positions not far from but not close enough to actual power. The saying goes that the U.S. and the U.K. are two countries separated by a common language, but the U.S. adaptation of The Thick of It was equally foul-mouthed and also directed at political culture. Veep then added the American elements of perpetual campaigning, fundraising, and flip-flopping. As with the major British party names, conservative and labor and liberal democratic, the U.S. parties Republican and Democrat are never mentioned on Veep. But there is frequent, if veiled, reference to political parties, especially that other party. Madam President, my extremist colleagues on the other side of the aisle... I'm not going to name someone from the opposite party to the I Supreme can force the party to make some tweaks. I have a useful college friend in the enemy camp. Now that we know a bit about David Mandel and the British origins of Veep, let's dig into the production of the show, starting with an explanation of David Mandel's showrunner role. That's showrunner, not Blade Runner. Still way more substantial than it sounds. Sure. The showrunner, which is a term that seems to have come more into fashion, it's just another way of saying the head writer. But it is more than that, in that you are the head writer, you are in charge of the creative vision of the show. And so you may not direct every episode, but the directors are reporting to you. You are sitting next to the director. You may not personally edit every episode, although you might, but you are the one approving, like, that is the show we are sending out to the network. I am definitely a very hands-on person, so I am always sitting next to the director if I'm not directing myself. And I am doing the edits myself. And so that's the easiest way to explain what a showrunner is on a TV show. On a movie, it's more sort of the director is in charge, and in television, the writer is in charge. You've also been involved with many iconic shows, were there jokes that you wanted to do at Seinfeld or Curb Your Enthusiasm that were deemed too political or too partisan? Do you remember for a long time, especially when you ordered from Amazon, everything came sealed in those plastic kind of cases that were really impossible to open? We did a kind of a run on that where Susie gave Larry a gift, but he couldn't get it out of the plastic. And I remember doing this joke where... We did a thing where she said, you need a box cutter. And Larry said, a box cutter? Who am I? Muhammad Atta. And when we did that moment, that joke, I remember just being really proud, feeling like Curb Your Enthusiasm right now, whatever that date was, is the only show on television that is going to do a Muhammad Atta joke about box cutters. Yeah, we've actually had a couple of stand-up comedians on the show, Mike Kaplan and Shane Moss. And, you know, we asked them, has it become more difficult over the past two decades touring around the country and doing stand-up in a polarized climate? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think any extreme is bad. And so I think the far ends of the spectrum on either side are problematic. I can't imagine touring around. I mean, I would have to think you have to change your act from city to city, town to town. But also, you don't really know who's going to be in your audience on any given night. And people just seem so quick to sort of 
want to complain. I've heard stories from people who just won't do colleges anymore because it's just impossible. And that's probably more of an example of, in some ways, the hyper-woke left where they just don't want to laugh at certain things or feel like you shouldn't. And I have a general problem with that just across the board. Well, unfortunately, our Veep t-shirts did not arrive in time. So... Apologies for that, but we're very curious about your memorabilia collection, and we wonder if you could tell us about a few of the Veep items that you might have in there. Sure. I'm a collector by nature, so I have been a collector of many, many things since I was a kid. And over the last like 20 years or so, I have a very big collection of original TV, movie, and memorabilia stuff, stuff from Star Wars, all sorts of like big genre movies and whatnot. And so when obviously working on Veep, it was sort of an opportunity to kind of, you know, pick and choose and kind of keep the things that I wanted to. So I have like any kind of cool campaign stuff that we did, like, you know, actual buttons, actual posters, shirts, that kind of stuff, which was very, very fun. But probably the best thing I have is actually the Dubonnet lipstick from the final episode, which was the thing that Gary puts on her uh, coffin at the very end of the, 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 basically, the finale. You'd hate the flowers, but I... I brought the Dubonnet. And ironically, it was the one thing that they gave away while I was, I finished the show, I finished editing, took a trip with my family. And while I was gone, I had forgotten to ask for it. And they gave all these props away to an auction house. And I had to bid on the lipstick and win it to get it back, basically, and paid an insane amount of money to win back my lipstick that I I wrote, made up, and picked the prop, and I had to win it back. But uh, Bidding on the lipstick sounds like something that Gary would do. <laughs> yes, exactly. He had to get it back for her. <laughs> By avoiding party labels and satirizing our zero-sum political culture, Veep was beloved by a wide range of Americans with huge ratings for a foul-mouthed cable series. And that's important. That's healthy, even if it was done primarily for audience ratings. Yeah, and you know, shared culture is essential in a democracy, and Veep was part of our shared culture. It seems like very few shows with political content can achieve that in our polarized age. It was also widely respected by other Hollywood creators, such as David Guggenheim. He avoided the party label trap by creating the ABC drama Designated Survivor around an independent president played by Kiefer Sutherland. And David's genuine respect for Veep came out in our previous episode. Veep wasn't so much about the issue. It wasn't an issue-oriented show. It was more about her and her staff, and it was very character-driven. And her whole thing was that she was flip-flopping on everything, so it didn't really matter really what side of an issue she was on. So, I, I mean... You won't catch me saying anything bad about that show. I think it's it was you know the most brilliant political satire on television we've had, I think, probably ever. Veep was also working to stay edgy in a fast-moving political environment, from the Obama to the Trump presidencies, and keeping up in an ever-changing media landscape. We asked David Mandel about the evolution of the show over its seven-year run, from 2012 to 2019. In other words, an eternity in American politics. 
The show was created by Armando Iannucci. I did not create it. I took over the show after he left, which I always like to point out to the world. And so I give him a tremendous amount of credit for creating these very archetypes you're talking about. And so the show became a very different thing over the course of it. And in some ways, it seems quite quaint, the idea of somebody who acts one way and then behind closed doors is very different. And obviously, our what's the word I'm looking for, our standards of what a candidate should and shouldn't say when they are in public have so radically changed over the last 10 plus years that sometimes the early days of Veep seem like another era. My first season of Veep, we did a joke about Selena accidentally tweeting something and it was a whole to-do. And of course, it now seems like I'm doing a joke about the telegraph. So- Yeah, it kind of seems, I was curious if you were, were you setting Veep sometime in the future or was it intended to be kind of this alternate universe? It started off as an alternate universe. I think we said something along the lines of, we never mentioned a president after Reagan. So it was the idea that like, up till Reagan Bush, it was America as we know it. But then different people got elected president after that. And things still happen. So 9-11 happened. The Iraqi war happened. So we were still referencing things that happened. And so to us, it was always the present day. And we obviously were always you know, both referencing real things and then obviously doing our versions of stuff. So for example, We did this, when Armando left the show, he did the much written about but never happened electoral college tie. And that's where I picked up the show. And then as part of unraveling the electoral college tie, I did our version of a Florida story where we did it in Nevada, where it was all about if they could get Nevada to flip, then she could win. And so we kind of did our version of missing ballots and, you know, politicized counting and who did this ballot vote for and all of that kind of stuff, which at the time was years after Florida, but it was like an our version of it. I just watched some of those episodes, actually. So one thing about this show is that every actor is pitch perfect from top to bottom in every single role. I'm curious when you had a sense that Julia Louis-Dreyfus, for example, was just perfect for this role and surrounded by these other people who were also perfect for their roles. I mean, I was lucky enough that uh, Julie and I worked on Seinfeld together. So I knew from day one just how incredible she was. And so, you know, as a fan watching Veep, the show that was put together, it was just, you know, it was really like it was such a perfect ensemble. And so for me, when I got the opportunity to kind of jump in there, it was kind of a mix of, you know, keeping them all on that same level and make you know and finding good stuff for all of them and then obviously as over the years we started to add a couple of additional people to it and you know and did things like we made Richard Splett more important under my watch Richard I mean really seriously you're one of the good ones Well thank you madam president I mean if I had had 100 Richards who knows what I could have done well, I mean probably a lot or it could turn out like one of those twilight zone scenarios where we all murder each other I think Catherine kind of changed and had a bigger story under my watch. 
I've met someone, and I know that this is awkward because you work with them, but we're in love. Who? <laughs> Me and Marjorie. Who? Me, ma'am. Uh, what? So, you know, trying to add these additional people into the mix, but keep it all on that same like level of, I don't know, I'll say perfection, because the people we added, we didn't add them lightly. And it was just, uh, you don't want to ruin the confection that is that ensemble. It was just so good top to bottom. Do you have any favorite episodes or scenes or lines that are really memorable to you? You know, I love different episodes at different times. Like, I'm really proud of that finale for a thousand different ways, and so I love it. I, I love the Catherine's documentary episode was another one that was a real favorite. There was a joke we tried forever to jam in, finally got it in, which was, uh, it was Selena in the final season. They're interviewing somebody, and she goes, I've got a question for the New York Times. You know, why do they write so much about modern dance or something like that? And I, I just, like, things like that make me laugh so much. And I love the character stuff. I mean, I do think there are things I was thinking about the other day of, like, Amy, Anna's character, Amy, trying to flirt and it bothering all the other characters. Uh, one, not even a line, but it's like uh, Selena yelling at her daughter, about like, you know, she's not old and she says something about her neck and Gary just makes a noise where he just is like, mm, and you just realize like, oh, he thinks she needs like a neck job. And it's those things that I just, I do love. But yes, I, I nothing but good thoughts and memories of the show. <laughs> As someone who has written a lot of speeches, I really enjoyed take immigration out of this. Yeah. <laughs> The, the, the voters need to know clearly and definitively why you want to be president. In your own words. If you want me to use my own goddamn words, then write me something to say, okay? Yes, ma'am. Oh, and take out the stuff about immigration, because I feel like it's a little too issuey. Okay. I do think that's one of my favorite parts of the show, of attempting to have these characters deliver speeches that say nothing. There was one that I really remember. It was uh, our version of when she kind of re-announces that she's going to run again and she basically pledges to go on her version of kind of a Hillary Clinton listening tour. But if you listen to what she's saying, basically she's just naming places where people go for political fundraisers. And so it's her just going, I will travel from Silicon Valley to Palo Alto, from New York City to the Hamptons. <laughs> I miss the show so much because it's an opportunity both to do those jokes, but also, uh, you know, how does one say it? To call out the hypocrisy of all politics, not just the left or the right, which I, I do love. Yeah. So for the benefit of perhaps our independent or unaffiliated voter listeners, we were wondering, was there any discussion of referring to independents or having characters who are independents to avoid the party labels? I do think we talked about like independent jokes and sort of to some extent, I remember talking about a, 
sort of a runner of Selena just really hating the idea of independence. Like, it's one thing if you're on the other party and not voting for her, but she was generally the idea that she was frustrated by the idea of somebody in her mind who couldn't make up their mind. So she did not necessarily see the benefit of being an independent, the idea of I'm not liking either of these parties or I'm liking parts of these things and I want to take my own tack. She kind of hated them. And so that was our funny sort of take on it. Yeah. So we wanted to make sure we have it right that you took over as showrunner, David. Was it during maybe the summer of the 2016 election cycle? I took over with season four. No, sorry. He did season four. I did season five. And it was at the beginning of season six while we were filming our second or third episode of season six, which is the Georgia episode where Julia, who is no longer president, Selena is no longer president. She goes over to the Republic of Georgia to supervise a free election as former politicians often do. And on that night, we were shooting that episode and that was Donald Trump won the election that night. Yeah. So at that point, did you feel like maybe Armando Iannucci set me up for this? He saw Trump was going to win and he didn't want to deal with this. I remember the morning of the election, we got a call from one of our people just basically going, uh, you know, Hillary's going to win in these are the numbers. And of course, you know, so it just sort of showed you that no one knew anything, I guess, as the saying goes. But, uh, you know, when it initially happened, because Selena wasn't president of the United States in our show, she was at that point former president of the United States, it didn't seem that terrible. I mean, it felt terrible for, in my opinion, for the United States of America, but I will simply say it did not seem at that point to be affecting our show as much as it could have. And as that stuff changed, I was initially very, very happy that we were not doing press conference briefings with Mike and having those have to play against Sean Spicer, just to pick an example, because it just seemed like they were doing their own episodes of Veep, basically, like the public screw ups, the non-answers, the evasion, you know, all of that stuff. It just started to seem like they were trying to outdo us in a very sort of sad but funny way. As we then got her back into politics, it became much more of a problem because politics had changed so much. And it really changed the back end, the final season of the show. When we shut down for a, a couple of months when Julia was recovering, thank God, from breast cancer, again, in my opinion, things started to get even darker perhaps than what Veep was doing it changed the direction of the show. And if you watch that final season, Selena is a darker, more horrible character. She'd always been horrible, but we felt the need, I felt the need as the showrunner to push it into this other realm because of what was going on in Washington, D.C. Yeah, well, we were wondering about the character of Jonah if someone had casually watched season one or two, they probably wouldn't have predicted this is going to be a major character, season five or six. Obviously a great comedic actor and great writing, but was it not also the 
spread of populism and the Trump story that kind of elevated Jonah's character? It definitely did. But, you know, it's funny. It started just basically from a writing standpoint. Obviously, Tim Simons is absolutely hilarious as Jonah and was a character that, you know, people loved. People loved how annoying he was. But the honest answer is that when we first wanted to elevate him to being a congressman, the reason was we were resolving the episode – sorry, we were resolving the storyline about the electoral college tie. And in resolving the electoral college tie, we knew that initially it was going to go into the House. So how do you solve that in just a writing standpoint? Well, what if we make one of our characters a congressman and then one of them is actually voting? I also think there is a how does one say, a lovable, a lovely low rentness to a lot of congressmen, that when you're talking about 430, whatever it is of them, with many of them sleeping in their offices to save rent money and whatnot, and, you know, that element of, like, there's a used car dealer kind of mentality to a lot of Congress people, I, in my own opinion, unfortunately. And so it sort of seemed perfect and in a perfect way, like, oh, he'll know nothing and be a congressman. This fits in with our our jaundiced view of Congress. And then once we were in there, we were then able to go further and kind of do our version of the Tea Party when he creates the Jeffersons, which of course he doesn't remember the name of the show, names them after Thomas Jefferson. And again, at the time, these were all jokes, is fighting to end daylight savings time, which of course is now an actual issue in the United States of America, God help us all. And then I will not lie, the notion of Trump basically in some ways showing that anybody could be president, it went sort of that one step further of let's run Jonah for president. Okay, I just want to say really quickly, though, that I would vote for any weird third-party candidate who pledged to end daylight savings time. It's like my number one <laughs> issue since having kids. Jonah was right. There you go. <laughs> it's a very bread and butter issue. That was our special guest, David Mandel. Perhaps not all of our listeners are sufficiently familiar with Veep to appreciate the irony of Jonah being right about anything, daylight savings or otherwise. So, Jillian, how should we describe Jonah to the uninitiated? Oh, God, where to start? Um, I think the one thing you need to know about Jonah is that he eventually married his stepsister. So what would you say to someone who might ask, how can they marry their step-siblings? I'm not her brother, and I never was. Except for that one year. Who wants to be my brand new smoking hot wife, Beth? Beth, come on out here. Who, of course, was the perfectly sweet, supportive political wife or stepsister. Or both. And he taps into a great anti-intellectual tradition. He declared a war on math, partly because his stepfather had failed him in eighth grade algebra. Algebra? More like Al Jazeera. <laughs> Under a Ryan presidency, I will ban this Sharia math from being taught to American children. No more math! No more math! No more math! No more Eventually, though, even with the character of Jonah played to annoying perfection by Tim Simons, David Mandel and the writers at Veep just couldn't keep up with the realities of Washington. We asked him about that decision to wind down an award-winning, still highly rated show when, in his words, it was no longer possible to compete with the writers of a show called Trump. Originally, I was thinking there might be 
two more seasons or the season you saw and maybe a bonus half a season or something like that. And Trump started his second year in office. And I've talked about this elsewhere, but it, you know, to me, when he got past that second January in office, it's like he put his foot on the gas and everything just got, and again, this is all pre-COVID, but things just started to get, in my opinion, more erratic. And the tweeting, the lying, all of these things just started to increase. And watching America over these like January, February, March of that second year in office, that the show just felt like we are in second place to this. And it got really wild. I mean, you know, I mentioned Jonah before, we did a joke where, you know, at one of his things, he brought up immigrants and one of his crowd members yelled, kill them. And he sort of said, no, not all of them. There are some good ones. And I remember that aired on a Sunday and that Wednesday, Trump was somewhere in Florida and more or less, he said something like immigrants and someone yelled, kill them in his crowd. And by the way, I don't think it was a Veep fan quoting the show. I believe it was an actual general kill them. And Trump laughed at it and kind of went, ha ha ha, only in Florida, which in some ways was much worse than Jonah's response, if you actually think about it. And so the space became, we were airing on Sunday and by Wednesday, Trump was doing it. So that was, we had to get off the air. There was no other way of saying it. Well, David, that speaks to a comment from one of our previous guests, Rod Lurie. As you know, he's created a few movies and shows around presidents, including an independent president, played by Gina Davis in Commander-in-Chief. But there's something else that's happened with political films, which is the political farce is out. You can't do it anymore, not with Trump having been in office. What are you going to do that is more extreme than this clown? You couldn't make a character more goofy and caricaturish than him. That show Veep is now a docudrama. Do you think that's still true? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think these things go in cycles, a little bit like in the 80s when they f made Vietnam War movies. I think there's a cycle to these things. And first we made our Rambos, and then we made our platoons, and then we kind of went off. And I do believe the time is right now for a West Wing, basically. Like, I think the West Wing reboot right now would be the show I want to see. Because Again, we got as dark as you could get, and we got off the air while we could. And I think the time is now to sort of show the good of what government could do or the possibility of government, that you just have to run counter to it. Was it a relief not to have to be writing and producing a satirical show during the Stop the Steal protests and the Capitol insurrection? I mean, yes and no. And one of the things... I guess I'll simply say that it was a little bit fun, was during the last election cycle, we did a lot of Veep political events. So when Julia, for example, was announcing one of the events, she like filmed herself in her backyard kind of announcing this Veep uh, table read that we were going to be doing and basically had like black hair dye sort of just running down her face a la Rudy Giuliani. And so I guess... It would have been horrible to still be doing the show. That being said, now it just feels like there's like four or five years at this point of some really ripe material. But again, only because it feels like the world has calmed down. Like now that the fire is out a little bit, not that things are perfect, 
but it just feels like you could breathe again or I can breathe again and maybe like the opportunity to do some jokes about this stuff would be kind of enjoyable. There's always uncertainty in American politics, but there's no question people will be laughing at beat many elections from now and getting a sobering look at our ego-driven political culture. This is one of the most decorated shows in television history. Not just Julia Louis-Dreyfus winning six Emmy Awards for Best Comedy Actress, but also three wins for Outstanding Comedy Series, including two during David Mandel's tenure. Veep has that special element in common with the great enduring political satires, like the 1964 Cold War classic, Dr. Strangelove. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Or Wag the Dog, the 1997 send-up of political spin machines on overdrive. You want me to produce your war? Not a war. It's a pageant. We need a theme, a song, some visuals. We need, you know, it's a pageant. It's like the Oscars. That's why we came to you. I never won an Oscar. Veep is not simply funny because it's wacky. It's funny because it's perfectly on the mark. The show portrays oh-so-familiar archetypes who are dealing in the hard beltway currencies of image, poll numbers, campaign contributions, and power. As in who can forget Selena's confessions of her childhood aspirations? If I was a little girl and you said to me, what do you want to do? I would have said, please, can I be president? And who cannot laugh even while crying at her inability to write a campaign speech on that very subject? Uh, hey, Gary. Mm-hmm. Why would you want to be president? Amy? Why would you want to be president? Why would you want to be president? As the child of a Native American. As okay, American. I got the gist. I should be president yep. because it is my goddamn turn. <laughs> Beware, dear listener and dear voter, of what David Mandel calls malignant narcissism and whatnot. Huge thanks to David Mandel for speaking with us while directing his upcoming HBO series, The White House Plumbers, a new angle on the Watergate scandal, which I can't wait to watch. And next time on The Purple Principle, we'll talk about a president who, unlike Richard Nixon, could boast an 82% favorability rating, at least among NBC viewers. That was Jed Bartlett, played by Martin Sheen, on seven seasons of The West Wing. That wildly popular show ushered in a spate of political dramas in the early 21st century. But not everybody swooned over Aaron Sorkin's fast-talking, liberal-leaning fantasy of the White House. There is, you know, uh, the smugness of the West Wing is something that I come back to again and again. And uh, I think it's one of the least attractive features of that show and its universe. We'll talk to cultural critic Luke Savage on that point from his home in Toronto, Canada. He wrote the current affairs piece, How Liberals Fell in Love with the West Wing. And we'll ask West Wing writer Paul Redford, why wasn't there more independent perspective on that show of all White House shows? Honestly, in the day-to-day just storytelling, I I was never sure how to do it. The independence winds up being some version of moderate. (laughs) It's like, well, you have good points and you have good points. And I'm all for moderation. And I know that's what politics is all about, but that makes it intrinsically undramatic. Please tune in next time for Indie Minded Perspective that is intriguing, but not dramatically hyperpartisan. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts to rate and review the show and leave us a message, audio or otherwise, through our website at purpleprinciple.com. Or via our Patreon page, where your support would be hugely appreciated. This has been Robert Pease and Jillian Youngblood for the Purple Principle team. Allison Byrne, producer. 
Kevin A. Klein, Senior Audio Engineer, Emily Holloway, Digital Strategy, Dom Scarlett and Grant Charrett, Research Associates, Emma Trujillo, Audio Associate. Original music composed and created by Ryan Adair Rooney, The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge Production. 